For you formed me in my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, when we watch the Super Bowl commercial and Tim Tebow's mother proudly proclaims that though her doctors recommended she abort her son, she withstood that temptation and had her son in the face of not very good odds, better odds that he would be born with some type of handicap or disability than he would be born, in our terms, healthy. The whole world applauds that. Because Tim Tebow has grown into a magnificent specimen of a man. He's a man among men. And this past season, he very well could have been the MVP of his team as he led them to four overtime victories, a playoff win in dramatic fashion, and even in loss last week, played with separated cartilage in his ribs and injuries that most of us wouldn't have got out of bed with, much less when got hit on the gridiron with the force of an NFL linebacker. And we applaud that, and we should. But let me ask you a question. When you watch Christopher Duffy, blind, plagued with autism, Is there ever the thought in your mind that, you know, is it really better? Is it really better to let children like him suffer? To be born? Is it, is it better for his uncle and aunt to drive from Connecticut to Florida and take him out of a foster care system? I mean, think about all of the time and energy and and resources, and I mean, is it really better? Or would it be more humane to just, when you get that diagnosis, you get that in utero diagnosis that there's something wrong, he's not going to be healthy, the mother's on drugs, he's, he's not going to live a productive life, is it more humane? Is it better to just say, let's just end that? Three thousand children every day in the United States sucked out of their mother's safe womb. Lives like Tim Tebow. And lives like Christopher Duffy. And lives all in between. Crushed. Thrown away as, discarded as medical waste. 50 million, 50 plus million children since the 38 year ago decision of the high court of this land to allow the legalized abortion to come to the United States. 50 million plus.
What I'm getting at is the intrinsic value of human life. The fact that no matter whether you're Tim Tebow or Christopher Duffy or a child with, with a genetic disorder destined to only live a few minutes, your life has meaning. It has purpose. It was created. It was put together in the womb by all-loving, all-good, all-merciful, all-gracious God. And how dare dads like me, even for a split second, think it might be easier. Because four years ago to this very day, I got that diagnosis. I held my wife's hand. I had seen the sonogram. It's bad. She's not going to live. And, and even for the split second that it might cross your mind, would it be better? Is it going to be too hard on my wife? I've got other children. Think about They're going to get attached to this little one. If it grows in the womb and mama starts showing, we've got to deal with the life and death questions of a three-year-old boy who marches down a hallway at a hospital and tells a nurse, I'm going to see my sister. Oh, that's so good. She's dead. But it's okay. She's with Jesus. See, the, it's easy for the pro-life agenda to become disconnected from us. Because these 50 million babies haven't died on the side of a highway. They haven't died from an intruder's gun. They haven't died in a hospital bed with loving family all around them after a struggle with cancer or some terrible disease. They just were never seen by the outside world. And we sanitized it. And we closed it behind doors. And we call it a medical procedure. And we, appar we apparently think, I can show you and we'll reference an article where the leading abortionist in the nation today, the leading apologist for abortion in the nation today says it's, it's like an appendectomy. That's our nation. That's our state. It's our community. And see, we can sit in the safety of this room and we can feel the, the angst of that situation and it's easy by lunch ending to forget about it. Because we don't hear their cries for mercy. We don't see their little lives snuffed out. It's easy to forget. I forget. You forget. And I don't want us to forget today. 
No, human life has value. Each human life, no matter who it is or what they may look like or what their abilities may be or how limited we may think they are, they have intrinsic value. Why? Because Genesis 1, 26-27 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. We don't need to read another verse in the Bible to say with conviction every human life counts. Every human life matters. You know, I think unbeknownst to us, the culture of death has crept into our own hearts, into our own minds. And it's those little thoughts that begin as small thoughts and become ways of thinking that lead us to excuse both the termination of life prior to birth and the killing of life in a hospital bed or a homebound situation for an older or elderly person. Same rationalization. or suicide that's assisted. The culture of death that we have created allows us to think this way. And I don't think we need to point the finger at the leftist or the liberal. I really think we need to search our own hearts and our own minds and evaluate where we're at. See, each of us will be accountable. You say, well, I didn't vote. In the Roe versus Wade. Those nine justices made a decision. Didn't have any, I didn't do that. No, you didn't. And I don't even go to Montgomery and make state law. No, you don't. And I don't go to Washington for sure. Never even visited there on a field trip, Pastor. I, 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 don't, I don't, that's not my, my responsibility. But see, the culture of death doesn't start in Washington or Montgomery or on a bench behind a justice seat. The culture of death starts in little thoughts in my mind, in your mind. In turning the channel when the commercial comes on because it's uncomfortable. In not reading the articles because I I really don't want to think about it. In not teaching my children the value of life. In allowing myself to begin to believe that this human baby is no different than a puppy. We need to think through the issue and really nail down in our hearts the fact that every life matters and every life has intrinsic value. And it's not because of what they can perform or what they can do or how they can entertain us, but rather because they are created in the image of God. And so we look at Psalm 139. And we see this portrait that, that the psalmist paints for us in this text. And I, I, I want to quickly run through the text, give a, give a short outline, and then I want to really be heavy here to apply the text into, into our lives. 
If you look at Psalm 139, it's one of those psalms that is well known. It's, 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 it's talked about, it's paraphrased often. <clears throat> the first six verses break down into a metric line, a meter, a poem. This is a poem. No is the, kind of the, the, the idea in that first stanza. No, no, knowledge. And then we see that Yahweh is the subject. He's the one who knows. So I would say this, that the first six verses deal with the omniscience of God. The fact that He knows everything. He knows the depths of my heart and He knows the, 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 the far reaches of the universe. He knows everything. If we look at chapter 7, I mean verse 7 through 14, we see another idea, and that is that Yahweh, again the subject, is omnipresent. He's everywhere. We can't, excuse me, that's through verse 12, we cannot get away from Yahweh. Yahweh is everywhere. He is here. Even if we went to the depths of the sea or went to the heights of the heaven, He would be there. It's not that David wants to get away from him. It's that he can't. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't get away from him. Because God is omnipresent. He's always with us. 13 through 18 break down into an idea of the creative act. Yahweh is the creator. He's the creator of not just magnificent mountains, huge stars and galaxies and planets, but He's the creator of Little ones in the womb. We're going to focus in on those verses. But at the end, in 19 through 24, I must confess, it seems like he loses all connection with the first, 20, uh, first 18 verses. It seems like 19 through 24 really doesn't fit at all. Many people have said this was added on after the fact. Uh, some even say David came back later and penned this later in life. We don't want to deal with the technicalities of it. I believe this was written as one poem, all together. And I don't think it's uncommon for this to happen. There are other psalms where it happens we could go to and show. But the point is that he contrasts the greatness of the knowledge and the power and the presence of God with the fact that he's suffering. You see what he says in 19? Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. That these men of blood would depart from me. My enemies. You see, it's the fact that David is suffering now. That brings him into a conflict that has to be resolved by the gospel. That God knows everything. He's present everywhere. And he's powerful enough to knit babies together in the womb. And make them right. And put their frame together. But my enemies taunt me. This is just common. Some of you feel this today. Some of you mothers who have aborted your children and you sit in our presence and you dread today. I want to say that though it may feel as if He is far from you, He's near. Not in judgment if you're in Christ, but in love. He is not unknowing of the decision you made. It is not hidden from Him. There are no procedures or doors or walls that can keep Him out. He saw it. He was grieved by it. He 
saw it as a wicked act and a sin like all other sin. But yet, in His Son, He has chosen to not only know it, but to be present and to feel that pain and to forgive. Search me, O God, and know me. Know my ways. Know my heart. That's the end. God, I don't fully understand how you can know all things, be everywhere, and have the power to create even the most intricate, woven together being on the face of the planet, a human being, and my enemies still have victory over me, yet you need to search my heart. I need you to tell me. I can't tell you. You're God. I'm the creation. Leave me now in the paths of everlasting life. That's the psalm in a nutshell. We run through it. That's the outline of the psalm. But I want to focus in on 13 through 18. Let's read that together. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. The Hebrew gives us the idea of one making a fabric, weaving a fabric together. Some people have called it, and later he will call it, the handiwork of God or the finger work of God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm set apart in my making. I'm different than all the other creation, and I'm different than every other human. God, you've made me an individual. I am who I am because you put me together in my mother's womb. It was your handiwork that did this. Wonderful, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depth of the earth, the womb of the woman was often in the Hebrew mind thought to be the very depth of the earth. The very darkness of the earth. The darkest place on the face of the earth is the womb. There's no light there. And this is where the secret work of God is being done through the DNA process of the creative act And God is superintending all of that, according to David. And and I believe that. And this church stands on that principle. That humans are not made void of the hand of God. God makes them. Even down to today. And so, he says, you made me this way and you wove me together in this dark place in the womb. But look, your eyes saw. In the utter darkness of the womb, God sees. Where nobody else can see, God can see. Your eyes saw me. You saw my unformed substance. At the very moment of conception, you saw me. But what did he see? That becomes a question. In your book were written every one of my days. God didn't see a blob of cells. God saw a grown man. When God created David in his mother's womb, he created a man that would be the king of his favored nation. When God wove him together in his mother's womb, God created a man who would be an adulterer and a murderer. And he saw him. And he had all those days written down in his book of life. So truly God is one who creates with full knowledge, full power, And His presence is there. And when He created David, He knew everything about him. Even the day he would die. So you say, well, if God is this, 
What about abortion? Why is it still here? Hopefully we'll see. Maybe we'll talk through that some. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. So his confidence in his relationship with God is built on the fact that God made him. God knew him. He, re he resigns himself to the fact that though I am who I am, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I'm the height I am. I'm the body shape that I am. I'm the, I'm the person that I am with the personality that I have and the likes and dislikes. All of that because God made me that way. And his thoughts about me are far more than I could ever imagine. And so I rest in the fact that he loves me. David is comforted even though he knows he's a sinner. Even though he knows how, how wicked he is, he's comforted by the fact that God is intimate in his creation. And so this is kind of the exegesis, talking through it. Now I just want to apply it. I want to go straight to application. How does a text like this instruct us of how to live in a world that's filled with abortion? 50 million of them, 3,000 a day. Well, first of all, it causes us to realize that we must pray. The number one tool in the fight against legalized or illegal abortion, the number one tool is prayer. Now, I'm not saying that in the sense of that's all we need to do. I'm going to apply it some other ways. You may get, you're probably pretty comfortable with praying. You're going to be pretty uncomfortable with some things I'll tell you later. But prayer is number one. This fight will not be won with picket signs, shouted jeers, confrontation, and argument. This fight will be won on a spiritual level. John Piper tweeted out last night. I may butcher it. Amy read it to me, but... He tweeted out, some of you probably read it if you follow him on Twitter. Does that shock you that John Piper's on Twitter? Shocks me still. He said, demons are more than happy to take millions of babies to cause millions of babies to go to heaven if they can make millions of murderers on the earth. This is a spiritual war. We wrestle not with abortionists or young mothers who have hard decisions. We wrestle with principalities and powers of the air that have brainwashed us to believe that babies are like appendixes. They are an unnecessary part of life. We can cut them out. Where does that come from? It's encouraged. It comes from the mind of man. And it's encouraged by the demons of hell. So the first thing we must do is pray. Pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-17 says, The will of God for you is this, that you rejoice always and pray without ceasing. We need to pray without ceasing about this matter. You want to stand before the throne of God one day? I thought about this this week. I want to stand before Jesus Christ one day. And though I've never lifted a scalpel, 
or inserted an instrument or given a pill. I'll stand before him one day and he'll say, weeks, months, years, son. Not one prayer for the unborn. Not one. What were you doing? Yeah, you preached a sermon once a year. Great. Did you pray for them every day? Prayer is the number one tool. Secondly, love. It is our joy. It should be our Christian hedonistic pleasure to love mothers who have aborted their children. To love them. To not think of them as despicable, but to look at them as like us. To love them. To minister to them. To wrap them in clothes, make sure they have a place to live, and food to eat. That they have counseling, good, solid counseling to deal with the guilt that is inevitable in their life. I've yet to meet one woman who was being honest, who had an abortion, who was not gravely hurting in her soul. So we need to love those mothers who have already committed this terrible decision to the scaffold. And we need to love the unborn. That means when you're the one sitting across from a doctor who says, it's not good. This child's not viable with life. I can tell you, our doctor in Aniston was as comforting and as loving and as ministerial as a man could ever be. He was a pastor to my soul in those months and to my wife. But we went to another facility, great medical facility, with great, very smart doctors who was a foregone conclusion with them that we would abort our child. You may face this. And when you do, you need to love the unborn. And when your friend does, you need to love the unborn. You need to care for them. You need to pray for them. And you need to be active. Active in helping them. Whether that is through, and we'll get to some other practical application here, but whatever that may be through, we need to help the unborn. So we need to extend love. I cannot imagine that loving our neighbor does not include our unborn neighbors. I can't imagine that when Jesus says whatever you've done to the least of these you've done it unto me that he wasn't thinking about helpless innocent children in the womb with no voice and no advocate. I can't imagine that he thought they weren't the least of these. I can't imagine that Christ who sat down when crowded about by adults and having children come to him fussed at his grown disciples because they saw children as an encumbrance and a disturbance and said, let the children come unto me. I can't imagine he doesn't want us to be actively pursuing ways to help the unborn. I can't imagine that if you look through the Gospels and you see how many times Jesus put his hands on people 
and the significance of him putting his hands on people. And yet Mark tells us that he stopped in his busy day to bless children by placing his hands on them and blessing them and saying, thus is the kingdom of God. It's like these. I can't imagine he doesn't want us to love them. Both the unborn and those who are born. So often the culture of death starts by the way we raised our children. I want to, now's when I step on the toe. Be careful when you preach the message that your children are a bother to you and they're in your way and they just cost a lot of money and they just keep mom and daddy from being able to do all the fun things we really would do if we didn't have these children. Be careful what seeds you plant in that 16-year-old little girl's mind. You're giving her the fodder for the mind that says when she finds out she's pregnant at 19, I'm not, I don't want to be bothered. Now you'll be shocked and in awe when she comes in and says she's had an abortion. She comes home from college. But just understand, it could have been the very seeds that we sowed. Because the born children, the little children of our own homes were a bother. And that message was repetitive. Love children. Love mothers who have already made this decision. And for, for the name of the Lord, love mothers who are struggling with this decision. It's why we, as a congregation, rally around the safe life of both Anniston and now Jacksonville. Matter of fact, in, it's, it's in the planning stages right now, but there's good opportunity that we may have a fundraiser for them so that they can buy an ultrasound machine for Jacksonville. Because one thing we've seen, and we know, is that if mothers see the living, beating, moving human inside of them, they almost always cancel the abortion and leave and keep the child. And so that's one of the ways this congregation is going to try to love little ones, is to get that machine there, so that that mother comes in at 15 or 16 and gets that ultrasound and says, it's the hardest decision I've ever made, but I'm going to have this child and I'm going to give it up for adoption or I know my grandmother wants this child or my mother will raise it or my church will take it in. I know this baby's better off alive than aborted. That's one way. This practically, we want to love them and we'll be getting you some details on that. You see, for too long we've said we're for life but we haven't clearly said what that means. Practically. So, pray for them. Love. Third, teach. Teach and train. This psalm needs to be taught to our children. It needs to be trained into them so that when they're faced with the toughest of decisions as a dad or as a mom or as a single mom, they might have the weapon of the Word of God in their hearts taught clearly to them that whether there's a genetic problem, whether this child is blind, whether this child will ever do all the things the other children do, his life is important. God made him this way. God made her this way. So we should teach and train. Teach and train our children and teach and train, again, I'm going to sound like a commercial for Save a Life, but Save a Life 
is doing a fabulous job of teaching and training young mothers and young fathers about how to be parents. And so often we're mad at them because they got pregnant, but nobody teaches them the practical things of budgeting, changing a diaper, giving a bottle. Nobody teaches them those things. They say, just have the baby. Okay, what do I do then? So teaching, training, these, and some of you have the opportunity and the availability to be involved with this training. And so that is an opportunity to teach and to train. And on the occasion that you have the opportunity given by God to speak with someone who's either in the field of abortion or has had an abortion or is thinking of an abortion, that you're trained to the point that you're able to talk with them without yelling at them. Without demonizing them. This week I read a blog by a man who was marching in uh, Minneapolis. He was marching in the Right to Life uh, march. It was earlier this week. And there were pro-choice advocates on lining the road with their signs as the Christians were walking and the pro-life people were walking. And several times heated exchanges were back and forth. This pastor, walking along, sees a sign. It's a circle with a hanger and a line through it. And what, it, what the simple message is, is would you rather us have coat hanger abortions or would you rather us have medical procedures? Would, do you love the life of the mother who will go because she can't handle another baby and kill the baby in her bathroom? Do you love her because she may get an infection and she may die? It's a good message. It's a thought-provoking message. This pastor passed that by, but then it, he turned and went back. And because he knew how to confront that, it did not become confrontation. That's the kind of teaching and training that needs to be had in the church by good churchmen and church ladies so that we can have an educated discussion with people without demonizing them for their views. I haven't met the person yet that if you scream and holler at them and shout a Bible verse on passing, that changes their view. They just change, they just change become harder towards Christianity usually. But it doesn't change their view on abortion. So that kind of training. So teaching and training our own children. Teaching and training the young mothers, young fathers. Teaching and training ourselves so we might be able to engage in this without becoming war and, 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 and battling. Fourth, provide. Provide. Here's where it really gets cranked up on the practical side. We need to be actively providing safe places for young mothers like Lifeline Children's Services in Birmingham who has a full uh, service uh, home for young mothers. Women who are about to have a child. And they take them in and they clothe them and they feed them and they train them and they teach them and they, Lifeline is an adoption agency so they they allow them to make a decision for life, whether that means to keep the baby for themselves or put the child immediately up for adoption. That is a provided service. That's why we're involved. It's one of the reasons we're involved with Lifeline. Adoption. I can't help but believe 
that one of the reasons abortion is still so rampant in our midst, it will always be here, I'm afraid, but it's so rampant is because young mothers at 17, 18 look at the foster care system that's overrun with children and says, I don't want to add to the number. If our churches and if our people fell under the conviction to adopt or take children from the foster system, I can't help but think there would be a young mother who seeing those numbers disappear would say, maybe I should have this child. Maybe he's not going to end up bounced to and fro and everywhere with no parents and no family. So we need to provide safe places. We need to provide adoption opportunities. It's one of the reasons that we advocate adoption so strongly here, both internationally and domestic. But we need to provide not only that, but we need to provide the simple care, the human concern for that father and mother. When we see them struggling to go and hold their hand. To not have all the answers, but just to listen. To love them like Christ has loved us. So provide that. Finally, fifthly, application of Psalm 139 is legislate. Now I know some of you frown. You cannot legislate morality. You can't. You cannot. But you can create an environment that is safe for both mother and child. You can pass legal provisions that make it more difficult to do the thing that you are trying to do. The raging debate right now in the church, whether you realize it or not, and you need to make yourself aware of this, is whether half-step legislation, partial-step legislation is a good thing or not. You see, some are saying, if we can't make it illegal to have abortions, then we shouldn't do anything else either. We should just keep standing on, make it illegal, make it illegal. Overturn Roe versus Wade. But I see a wide gulf of opportunity between 50 million abortions and the illegal abortion. Opportunities like the state of Ohio, who right now, their leaders, are looking at a provision to require, to require every mother to take a sonogram. Cannot, no one can come into a medical clinic pregnant if this passes and refuse the sonogram. They have to take it. They still may choose to abort their child, but let's make it more difficult by showing them that there is a real life involved here. Legislation like our own state has passed in the, in, in the past for parental consents. Simple things. Look small. Are we really winning? If it saves a life, one, was it worth the time and energy? It goes back to the question of the intrinsic value of life and the image of God. Let us never stop praying and seeking the overturn of what I believe was a hijack of our Constitution in Roe versus Wade. 
But let us not sit idly by and use Roe versus Wade as cover for our inactivity. And say, well, we can't get it all, so we just won't do anything. I would propose that we begin to pray about and actively seek that abortions not be allowed to be given on a sliding pay scale. You do realize most abortions occur in the inner city. There are neighborhoods inside our larger cities that will have more abortions than live births over the next five years. You do realize the majority, the majority of those abortions are minorities. And you also realize the reason they're able to do that is because we have an immoral law that allows doctors to give treatment, abortions, to little young girls in the inner city based on their ability to pay. We don't treat cancer that way. You show up at the nation's greatest hospital for cancer and tell them, I'm just going to pay you what I can. See if they give you treatment. We're violating every principle in laws that allow that kind of activity. What we're really saying is, we don't want poor people, nor their children. world's better without them. I can't help but turn in my stomach as I watch people who march on Martin Luther King Jr. holiday and yet legislate to allow more abortions to occur in the African American community by far than any other community. That's not the dream. And that's not loving your neighbor. And so we should be offended by that. To tie into next week, we'll talk about race and the unity that, that is possible in the gospel. But that is not unity and that is not love. And that is immoral. We need to work with our legislatures. We need to beg them and plead with them to do the right thing, the moral thing, to stand against the tide. What if William Wilberforce had taken the approach of until y'all say we won't have slavery, I'm not going to do anything. You see, because slavery ended in the British Empire in the 1800s because they passed legislation to stop the sale of slaves in the British Empire. A generation later, there was no way to have a slave. You couldn't buy one. What if he had said all or nothing? What if he had not taken the halfway approach? So we need to be advocating. We all need to be. You say, well, it's not my call. You stand before Christ one day. You explain to Him how it was not your call. Explain to Him how it didn't matter in the end. In the end, the greatest statement we make about the sanctity of life is we celebrate life. You know, last night, I stood in the hallway in Jacksonville Hospital, lined on both sides with friends and family. And little Lydia Kathleen Gilbert came out with Jason, proud daddy, holding her. 
It was like, even the nurse said, y'all got a victory line. As he took her into the nursery, the memories of four years ago became sweeter. Because the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Little lives like Lydia, homes like the Gilberts, they speak loudly. Pro-life. So let us celebrate the beauty of every life. And let us welcome each one with open arms. And let us love them until they die on the last day the Lord has written for them. If it's a hundred years or nine minutes, it's precious.